0: Unfailing love, higher than mountains, deeper than oceans, reaches to us all. But do you believe it? There's not a hole or pit you can fall into that God's love in Christ cannot reach down and pull you out of. And that is a gospel promise. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it to Esther chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses uh, 4 all the way through 5-2, Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and we'll be going all the way to verse 5-2. How we worship reveals what we prioritize. The American church avoids lament, and consequently, the underlying narrative of of suffering that requires lament is, is lost in, in lieu of a triumphalistic and victorious narrative. We forget the necessity of lament over suffering and pain. Absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in a liturgy of the American church results in a loss of memory, says Su Chan Ra. And for such a time as this, we need the Lord Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to restore our loss of memory, to restore it to the realities of suffering. And then we need him to help us to lament those sufferings, the ones we experience and the ones we see other people experience. For such a time as this, lament is always a response to human suffering. We saw this last week in, in Esther 4, in the first four verses 1 through 3. We saw that the Jews lamented because genocide was decreed against them in the Persian Empire. The author showed us Mordecai's uh, personal and individual and public lament. Then he showed us the communal lament of the Jewish people within the empire. And so again, lament is a response to suffering. It is a response. And this morning, the author is going to show us some other responses that we can have to human suffering as well, along with lament. So Esther chapter 4, get in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her units came and told her, she, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to put to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree that was issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor, to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the peoples... Of the king's province, provinces, know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. Then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than in the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women were also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I will perish. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's chambers, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor and she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter this is God's word please pray with and for me holy spirit i pray that you will come and move and continue to move in this place as we come to the preaching of God's word we pray that you will not just speak to our minds, but you will, just, you will speak to our heart as well. That you will shape our heart and shape our minds according to God's word. We need you to do this. You are the one that is to lead us into all truth. We cannot understand the scriptures apart from you. It doesn't matter how smart we are, how many degrees that we have, or how many books or sermons we listen to. Apart from you, we cannot understand scripture. We can't apply scripture. So, Holy Spirit, first forgive us for taking you for granted. And please come and minister to us today. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. A a great communal lament is taking place amongst the Jewish people in the Persian Empire because of this genocide that has been decreed against them. And it says in verse back in verse 3, it says, In every province where the king's command and decree reached, There was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So all the Jews are are lamenting, but there is one Jew in the empire who is not lamenting. There's one Jew in the empire who is not fasting, weeping, and in distress. One who is not wearing sackcloth and ashes. One who doesn't even know what has been decreed against her people, doesn't know what's coming. This person is in a position where she doesn't have to see, touch, or feel the coming injustice, the coming genocide. And that's Queen Esther. That's Queen Esther. And you see, in reality, there are some people who are in positions where they don't have to see, touch, or feel suffering because they have a certain status, a certain lifestyle, a certain power, a certain privilege that shelters them. They don't have to touch or feel or see injustice, abuse, hunger, poverty, homelessness, police brutality, systematic brokenness, terrorism, persecution of the faith. They don't have to see those things. And some of us here may fit that bill, just like Queen Esther fits that bill within the Persian Empire. She lives in the king's palace. She's, she's, she's moved up if you watch the Jeffersons, she's isolated. She lives in a bubble, and she's not aware of the suffering that's coming. And as I said last week, Scripture is not a fairy tale. The things that I'm reading to you in this book happen. It is truth. And so we can sit, we, if you sit and say, man, is this really true? Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. Yes, it happened. We're looking back into history here. And so she's in this bubble and she doesn't know what's coming. She's not informed. And so are we informed? Are we aware when it comes to suffering? For such a time as this, lament isn't the only response to human suffering. Awareness is also a response to suffering. Awareness of individual and communal suffering Awareness of personal and systemic suffering. Awareness of relational and social suffering. For such a time as this, the church in America has been providentially placed by God to not only lament suffering, but also to gain a better awareness of the sufferings around us. People in this city are suffering. People in your neighborhoods are suffering. People who go to school with your kids are suffering. But do we have awareness of the suffering around us? at the body of Christ? Are we informed? Do we see it? Do we see it? We can create awareness. We can give awareness. And we can receive awareness of the sufferings around us. We do this corporately as a body. And we can do this as individual believers. But do we have the compassion and the humility of Christ to do so? To do so. Beloved of God, ignorance is bliss. Cannot be a conviction of the church. Ignorance is bliss. Cannot be a stated or functional conviction of the church of Christ in this country. Cannot be when it comes to suffering. Be informed. Pursue awareness. Seek it and humbly rec- receive awareness when other people try to offer it to you. And that's, that's hard to do. Receiving awareness is hard for those who think they know everything about everything. And I'm guilty of that because I think I know a lot of stuff. But the truth is, none of us know everything about everything. We all need awareness of some areas of life. And to receive awareness, it requires you to admit that you are the younger brother and younger sister in certain areas. You're not always the older brother and older sister. Sometimes you've got to sit on the other people and let them teach you. And that takes humility, that takes compassion. Do those close to you, do those close to you have the freedom to make you aware of what you're not aware of in life? Do those in this church have the freedom to make you aware of what you're not aware of in this life, to make you aware of what you just don't know? Remember Esther. remember the queen. She's in a nice position. I kind of wish I had her position. Nice position, nice title, nice status, and there's nothing wrong with what she has. But there is a disconnection. She's unaware of the injustice that's coming for her own people. She's unaware of what her cousin Mordecai is doing in the public square. She doesn't even know he's lamenting. She doesn't even know he's protesting what's coming. She's unaware of the communal lament that's taking place amongst her people. The queen has to be made aware of what's going on, because he's in the position where she doesn't have to see it, she doesn't have to touch it. She got out of the projects, okay? She got out. She's not there anymore. She's royalty now, so she doesn't. She's not connected with what's going on on Main Street. She doesn't see it anymore, but her servants see it because they're still connected to Main Street. They're still connected to the regular folk. And so they have to make her aware of what Mordecai is doing because they witness him out in the public square crying and lamenting in front of the king's gate. And they go back and they tell Esther, hey, your, your cousin, your, your dad, whatever he is to you, he's out here crying. <laughs> and, and, and it's, I mean, crying loudly out in public. What, what do you want us to do? And so when she hears this, it deeply impacts her. It deeply impacts her. She is deeply distressed by the news of what has taken place with Mordecai. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her units came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed by this news. She is concerned for Mordecai. And it's, not, it's no surprise because Mordecai is her cousin, family, and pretty much her dad. He raised her. Their relationship is a factor to why her initial response is emotional distress. Mordecai is in pain, and she's in pain with him. She has sympathy for him. You see, having a personal r- relational connection with those who suffer helps you in the awareness process. It does. Having a relationship with those who suffer helps you gain awareness. Not, we should just gain awareness from a distance. Because it's easy for me to gain awareness from, from a distance. And what do you mean by that, Pastor Alex? Well, I can just read a blog. I can just go to Twitter. I can go to Facebook. I can go to social media. I can read a book. I can read a newspaper. I can watch YouTube videos. So I can gain awareness about suffering from a distance. But the gospel calls us to gain awareness on the front lines close up and personal, to be in relationship with those who suffer? Are you in relationship with people who suffer? Are you close to your family The family members you're going to see over Christmas, some of them are struggling. Are you going to distance yourself from them? Because, you know, I don't want to get that on me. It's the Christmas holidays, and I'm on break. I just want to eat my turkey and my dressing and go home all by mac and cheese and go home. (laughs) Up close and personal when it comes to those who suffer. Do you know the people who are suffering currently? And if you do, then what do you do once you know? What do you do once you see it? What's your response? What is Esther going to do? She puts forth a good faith effort to help Mordecai. She tries to help him. She has good intentions. Look at verse 4. She sent garments garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. Sometimes good intentions aren't always enough. And sometimes good intentions, sometimes people are unaware of the failures of their good intentions too. Esther sends Mordecai some proper attire to take off his sackcloth so that he can enter the king's gate. She wants him to take off the sackcloth. She wants him to stop carrying on like he's carrying on in public. Get the hold of yourself, man. Stop lamenting like this. And don't miss the, the underneath message of what she's doing. She wants him to stop lamenting. Stop lamenting. Dr. Christina Emerson, I read this quote a few weeks ago. She says, when we rush people past grief and lament, it's often for our own perceived. It's not often for their perceived good, but ours. When we rush people past grief and lament, it's often for our perceived good, not theirs. And Mordecai refuses to be rushed past his grief and lament. He doesn't accept the non-lamenting clothes. He keeps on his lamenting clothes, continues to to lament and protest what's coming. But what about the queen now? Will she continue to pursue awareness, or what is actually causing her cousin to be in distress? Or will she wash her hands of it? What would she do? She, she offered the help, right? She did her part, right? She gave him some clothes, right? She tried and he refused. So she did her part. So she can just keep it moving. I can just keep it moving. I tried to help and he refused my help. So I'm done. But she doesn't keep it moving. She does pursue greater awareness to what is causing him grief and pain. So she orders the, one of the king's eunuchs to go out and find out what is really going on with Mordecai. What is really going on? We Start singing the Marvin Gaye song. Now what's really going on? What's going on, Mordecai? So she called for Haytag, one of the king's units who have been appointed to attend her, and she ordered him to go and learn what this was and why it was so he goes out and he meets mordecai in the open square in this in the front of the king's gate and that's what mordecai has been standing and lamenting the whole time and he's not standing at the entrance of the king's gate to get clothes okay he's not standing there to get clothes from from his cousin he's there to get her attention so he can make her aware of what's going on what's coming and so he uses Haytack to make her aware. He tells him the whole truth. He tells him everything that had happened between the king and, and Haman. He makes him aware of the systemic injustice that is coming for his people. And please know what is has what hap- what really to happen to the Jews is a system problem. Because they're using the law to commit genocide. They have made it legal. That's what they did. The king has the power to do that. And that's what they're going to do. They have made it legal to go in and, and, and kill all the Jews. They had made it into Persian law. Verses 7 and 8a. Mordecai told him all that had happened the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destructions of the Jews. And he also gave him a written copy of the decree issued in Susa for their destruction. He unloads on on him, gave him all the details to pass along to the queen. But before he lets him leave, he he also wants him to get the queen to do something. He just doesn't want to make her aware of what's going on. He wants her to do something about it. That's what Mordor, he wants her to let her awareness lead her into action. And there's a principle here for us. Don't Don't just lament and gain awareness only, but be informed to do something. Do something to fix the problem. Be part of the solutions. And for some of us, that means you should have voted last week, this week. That's the principle. You should have voted. And I'll leave it there. (laughs) That's what Mordecai wants for the queen. You are aware. Now what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And he's kind of forceful in what he demands of the queen. He seems to forget who he's talking to. Now, if you're a parent, sometimes your kids forget who they're talking to, and you have to set them straight. So look at verse 8. He says, Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her, you know, her servant, you know, going to command her, command her to go to the king and beg his favor, Plead with him on behalf of her people. Notice his choice of words. Show it, explain it, and command her. Mordecai commands the queen of Persia to act. And he's expecting her to comply and obey with his orders without question and discussion. And what do you think and feel about that? About his strong words towards the queen. He's demanding and he's forceful. Commanding her to use her position To plead for her people's life before the king. There is an urgency here because of what's coming. He knows what's coming. She doesn't know what's coming yet. For such a time as this, a response is needed. Action is needed. For there is no shades of gray when it comes to genocide. There is no shades of gray there. It's black and white here. Suffering is suffering. It's hard. So you can't blame Mordecai for being direct and point blank. You can't blame him for his urgency. The Jewish people need help. Real help. And Queen Esther is the logical uh, choice because she's close to the source. She's married to the man who can fix it. Plus she's family. And she's in a high place. But will she help? Would you help? Would you help? Eventual Haytack, with all this information, Haytack the eunuch, he has all this information. He's like the middleman. He's going back and forth, passing on information. He's just stuck in the middle of these two. So he goes back to the palace and he informs the, the queen. He makes her aware of, of what's coming. He makes her aware of the, of the decree that's been issued against her people. He shows her the letter and he explains the letter to her. And then he gives her Mordecai's command and instructions go to the king. Plead his favor on behalf of your people. And the queen has an important decision to make. A very important decision. Will she do what her cousin is ordering her to do? Historically, Esther has always obeyed Mordecai. She has never not obeyed him. And Esther 2, verse 20 says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. That means she always obeyed him. She always did what he he asked her to do. But things are different now. The stakes are higher now. Shades of gray are going to enter the room now. And the queen gives him pushback. On what he's commanding her to do. And rightfully so. He, he makes assumptions. Mordecai makes assumptions. He assumes that the queen has some influence on the king. He assumes it's going to be easy to get the king to help. He assumes it's going to be simple to stop what's coming. To appeal this unjust law. You see, he presents the queen with a black and white solution. For a complex problem. And here's the thing. Simple solutions don't work with complex problems. They do not. They do not. And finding a solution to this genocide is going to be in shades of gray. It's not going to be simple and easy. It's not going to be in black and white. Why is that, Pastor? Well, why can't it be black and white? Because there are laws in place within the Persian Empire on who gets to see and speak to the king. The king does not have an open-door policy. See, I have an open-door policy. Anybody can come see me. And I'm not saying I'm a king. I'm just just saying. I have an open-door policy. The king does not have an open-door policy. Queen Esther cannot just stroll into the inner court and say, What's up, husband? Can we talk? She cannot do that. She cannot just gracefully go into the inner court and beg and plead on behalf of her people. Queen Esther will have to break a law. In order to do what Mordecai is commanding her to do. And she knows this. And she's like, cuz, you cray cray man. I don't know what you're talking about. You haven't thought this through. You don't know what you're demanding of me. You don't know what you're asking me to do. Because what's underneath his request is that he is asking her to put her life on the line. That's what he's asking her to do. I want you to risk your life. In order to try to save your people. Please know that. That's what's underneath that request. If I do this. I'm risking my life. I could actually die. If I do this. And she sees that. And she gives pushback. And she refuses to do it initially. Verse 10. Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him. To go to Mordecai and say. All the king's servants and peoples. Of the king's provinces know. That if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called into the king these 30 days. She hasn't seen the king in a month. And she's probably thinking, I ain't got no favor. I ain't seen my husband in a month. And, she, and her cousin doesn't know what he's commanding her to do. And she's not feeling this. She could die. And I could relate to her refusal. I get it. What about you? It's risky. This is dangerous. This is life-threatening. And why should she put her life on the line? Why should she, she risk her good thing? She's comfortable in the palace. She's safe. She's secure. She's secure. In fact, no one in the empire knows she's Jewish. They don't even know she's Jewish. She's, she kept her ethnicity and nationality a secret. Maybe the genocide will pass her by. Maybe the suffering that's coming isn't her problem. It's not my problem. It's not going to impact me. Self-preservation is a God we all worship. And personal risk is to be avoided at all costs. And when faced with a decision to protect self or others, ten out of ten times we choose self. And when it comes to human suffering, we'll lament, we'll gain awareness, and we'll only work for solutions if it doesn't cost us anything. No discomfort, no risk, no sacrifice, no loss. But please remember that for such a time as this, the church is providentially placed by God. The church is placed where she is not just to lament suffering, not just to gain and receive awareness of suffering, but she is also placed there for solutions to injustice, to abuse, to poverty, to homelessness, to relational brokenness, to evil. This means for such a time as this, advocacy is a response to human suffering. But do we believe this? Do you believe that the church is to be an advocate for those who suffer? Do you believe it? Our lament and our awareness should propel us to advocacy. And there will be risk. It can't be avoided. Standing up for truth isn't risk-free. If you're going to stand up for this, it ain't risk-free. Please know that. It's not risk-free. Standing up for the oppressed and the marginalized isn't risk-free. Standing up for justice isn't risk-free. Being an advocate is risky, but there's one way you can love your neighbor as yourself. Be an advocate for them. That's what Mordecai is asking Esther to do for her people. Be our advocate before the king. You're the only one that we have in the palace that can advocate for us. Will you do it is his request. And he challenges her to risk her comfort, her status, her privilege, and her way of life to advocate for her people. That's what he's asking her to do, to even risk her life. He challenges her not to remain silent and deceive herself into thinking this coming genocide is just going to pass her by. And it won't just pass her by. He tells her for such a time as this. She had become queen of Persia. Esther has been providentially placed there by God. And one of the challenges of the book of Esther is that God is not mentioned in the book, but his providence is all throughout this book. She she didn't just become queen in her own strength. It's because God is providentially at work within the book. And sometimes his providence is unseen. We can't feel it or touch it, but it's always at work. You've got to believe that because either we are by ourselves or we have a God who is at work. It's one or the other. Either He's at work or He's not at work. Now, that's black and white. God isn't dealing shades of gray. He's black and white. He's either good or He's not. He's either at work or He's not. He's either God or He's not God. It's not both and. and so we believe that God is providentially at work within His book. And Esther got to the throne because of God's providence, working on behalf of his people, the Jewish people. So she's there to be an advocate for her people. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance would arise for the Jews from another place, where you and your father's house would perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's a providential statement. For such a time as this, she has come to the throne. And for such a time as this, the church in America is providential place where she is for a reason for reason. So after Mordecai's rebuke and exhortation, Esther agrees to be an advocate. She agrees to, to put her life on the line for her people. And then she makes preparations for her advocacy And she by requesting her people to intercede on her behalf. And we see that in verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold it fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then go to. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I will, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. And three days later, she goes. And in three days later, she finds favor from the king. And we see that in. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And again, that is God's providence at work, moving and working behind the scenes. He does use broken people to fulfill his purposes in the world on behalf of his people. Every year, we celebrate the Advent before Christmas. Every year, we celebrate it. It's a wonderful time of remembering the incarnation of Christ. But how often do you think about the fact that Jesus existed Long before the virgin birth. He, he existed. He existed a long time before then. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I want each of you to know that Jesus had awareness of human suffering before the incarnation. He had awareness of your problem before he came to earth. He had awareness of mankind's greatest need before he went to the cross. He had awareness of our separation from God, the Father, because of sin before he entered this world. He had awareness of all that. And what I love about Jesus is that he just didn't sit on that awareness. He did something about it. And that is what Advent represents. It's God's solution to humanity's greatest need. And Jesus Christ is that solution for such a time as this. Jesus didn't just have awareness of our greatest need. He became an advocate to do something about it. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, when he served as a sacrifice for our sins, He solved the same problem for good, not only ours, but the whole world's. Our advocacy on behalf of other people is us simply walking in Jesus' footsteps. It's doing for others what Jesus does for you every single day of your existence. You hope you know that. Why should you be an advocate for those who don't deserve it? Because Jesus is an advocate for you and you don't deserve it. That's why. He's He's seen it for you right now. Right now. For such a time as this, are we willing to be advocates for others? Are we willing to risk comfort positions and status and privileges and lifestyle and rights for the sake of advocating for other people? If we don't do this, we don't do this because we're Democrats or Republicans. We don't do this because we're progressive and and conservatives. We don't do this because we're socially, our social status. We don't do this because of our ethnicity. And we don't do this because we're socially woke. We do this because of who we belong to. Because of who we are in Jesus. Who are we? We are his people. His sons and daughters. And we have been loved by him with an unfailing love. That's higher than mountains, deeper than oceans. And with that, that empowers us to move out and to love others. For such a time as this, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus chose to suffer. Because at any moment he could have gotten down off the cross. I hope you know that. He chose to let them beat him. He chose to do that. Think about that. He chose it for people who don't deserve it. He chose to be your advocate. He would have been just to let you die and go to hell. And he would have been justified in doing so. But because he's merciful. But because he's gracious. Because he's loving. He came in the atmosphere. He came as a baby to be your sacrifice, to be your advocate. And that is good news. Everybody should be standing up doing cocktails around the church here right now. And for such a time as this, because of what Christ has done for us, we are providentially placed by God to be salt and light of the world in the midst of human suffering. We're to lament it, we're to seek and gain awareness about it. And we are to be advocates for those who suffer. For such a time as this, let us be the city on the hill for those who need the gospel. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our advocate. Not in the past, but presently. As I stand here and pray, you are my advocate. Our advocate. I thank you that you are thank you that you still watch over us thank you that you still are interceding on our behalf and so jesus remind us of that be with us as we move out of this sanctuary and we go back out into the world we are going to be around a lot of people who are suffering this holiday season family and friends give us a word sometimes just, just just be present with people we don't have to try to fix it. Just be present with people. And be, help us to be also be reminded of the fact that you love us in spite of us, that you are with us. Even if you don't fix all of our problems, you are still good, you are still merciful, you are still Emmanuel. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for choosing suffering. Thank you for choosing not to just sit on the awareness. Thank you for choosing to also do something about it. And you did You died and rose again. Thank you, Christ. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our service.